Welcome to the Spinster Life Podcast. Thank you for joining me. I'm flying on my own today for this very haute couture episode all about Coco Chanel. Why did I pick Coco Chanel to cover out of all of the spinsters that are and have ever been? Well, this is my chance to start doing something I've needed to do for a long time, and that is inject a bit of nuance into the show. Because most of the women I've talked about on this podcast are flawed people, especially people from around this time period. Let's take Susan B. Anthony, for example. She was alive at the same time Coco was. Their fame didn't overlap. Coco became well-known way after Susan B. Anthony died, but they both come from a time when class was much more rigid and racism was a very prominent feature of the societal fabric. In the late 1800s or early 1900s, a politician or a public figure wouldn't get pushback for saying something racist. In fact, they would probably get more pushback from being anti-racist. And even as late as the Obama administration, gay marriage wasn't something politicians could back and not get pushback for. So humans have a troubling and problematic past with social issues. It only stands to reason that Susan B. Anthony said racist things and that Coco Chanel was an anti-Semite. And it only stands to reason that I need to change how I cover spinsters on this podcast. I haven't been as nuanced in my coverage of spinsters as I would have liked. I didn't know how to call these spinsters' past behavior out without feeling like I was giving all spinsters a bad name, so I leaned into fangirling over them. Well, I'm not Leslie Nope. While her love of famous women in politics was an endearing character trait and got the conversation going about women's contribution to history, I am not a fictional character, and I, myself, am a complex and flawed person. And as studying history, I've really come to believe that no person from history should be fawned over or put on a pedestal. But we also don't have to throw out their contributions to the feminist movement or to the way women move through the world. We can recognize the good things they did while also discussing how we've evolved to the point where we can call out their bad behavior. I think this Tina Fey joke kind of sums up what I'm getting at. And yet I hope that like Mark Twain, a hundred years from now, people will see my work and think, wow, that is actually pretty racist. Don't get me wrong, I don't want to say racist things, and, and I don't want to say things that are problematic. I want to avoid that at all costs, because that's not who I am as a person. But I would hope that in 100 years, our society has advanced to the point where the current view of single women is really, really dated and maybe even offensive. I'm trying to get things to change. The whole point of doing the spinster life is to change how single women are viewed. Anyway, on to Coco, a complicated spinster. She was far from the image of the sexless, frumpy, sad woman that is most commonly associated with the word spinster. She was a trendsetter who changed the face of women's fashion. She redefined what dressing like a woman meant and gave modern women the gift of pants. All about Coco Chanel. Gabrielle Coco Chanel was born in 1883 in the Loire Valley of France. She was born in a time in history when women weren't able to vote, withdraw money from bank accounts without their husband's permission, or work without their husband's permission. Despite being born into a world that didn't consider women people, and in a time when class, money, and social standing, like the kind you get by being married, were even more of a barrier to entry than they are today. Coco Chanel was able to become the head of a major fashion house with worldwide recognition. Even if you don't buy designer, Coco's designs affect the way you get dressed today. Young Coco didn't have a traditional childhood. She was born into poverty. Her mother became pregnant with the family's first child out of wedlock, a horrible stain. Her father was a traveling salesman and never made a successful living. The family lived in poverty. And when Coco's mother died, she and her sister were shuffled off to a Catholic orphanage slash poorhouse slash convent. Lots of other children lived there, but their families had some means to provide 
better food and better clothes. Coco and her sister had none of that, and they depended completely on charity for everything. And what they got in return was sustenance-level food and some hateful ideas about Jewish people, which we'll discuss later. Because of the trauma and chaos of her childhood, Coco created a mythology about herself and where she came from, even the nickname Coco. Some stories say her father gave it to her, and some say that the nickname came from a song she sang when she was a nightclub performer. It's hard to know what was fact and fiction in her life. I didn't read every source available about Coco's life, so I might not get all of the facts right, partly because she was so good at crafting stories and myths about her life. And as I said up top, I'm not covering Chanel to idolize her. She was not a perfect person. But you don't have to make up stories about how she used clothes to change women's lives for the better. Just look down. Chances are that what you were wearing was directly affected by the work of Coco Chanel. Is it stretchy? Could it be worn to play a sport? Can you move freely in it? Just think about that while we discuss the spinsterness of it all. Coco never married, but she had many men in her life, many affairs and relationships with varying power dynamics that shifted with her economic situation. Her status as a kept woman may also be the source of the nickname Coco, short for Cocotte. Her first affair was with a man named Etienne Balsan. The arrangement suited Coco just fine. It gave her access to his horses, which she loved, and it gave her access to some of his money. In fact, he was just one of the men that she was associated with who set her up with her first fashion business, a hat store. He became truly annoyed when she treated her business seriously, and then the business took off. Their relationship drifted apart, and Coco went on to have a series of relationships with high-profile men, including members of the British royalty, including the controversial Duke of Westminster and the Prince of Wales. Edward VIII, both of whom were virulent anti-Semites. One of her last and most notable affairs or relationships was with an actual Nazi, Baron Hans Gunther von Dinklage, which I'll cover in more detail later. All this to say, would Coco have ever been able to be married? I don't think she would have ever wanted to because of how a marriage would have taken away from her business. It would have left her without the agency to make financial decisions for herself. It would have greatly constricted her ability to access her own money, and make decisions about her own working life. So here's what never getting married got her. It got her the freedom to do her work the way she wanted. She grew her business by herself. She never had to answer to any man about the direction she wanted to take her business. Even when men lent her money, she didn't have them manage it for her. She also had the space to prioritize her work. She wasn't the mistress of the house in the traditional sense of the word. While after she became successful, she did have multiple homes at various points in her life, she hired other people to take care of them. She wasn't busy doing the emotional labor of managing a husband or children. She also got financial freedom. Laws around women's ability to control wealth have always been restrictive. In France, women weren't allowed to open their own bank accounts until the 1960s. Also, until the 60s, women had to ask their husbands' permission to work. I'll link to a video in the show notes that has a little bit more information about women's financial freedom in France. So none of these arrangements would have worked for Coco. She was the head of a large, successful corporation. If she needed to get permission to work, would she have been as successful? Likely not. The myth of Coco Chanel. I mentioned earlier that Coco Chanel lied about the trajectory of her life. A lot. Many facts about her are manufactured stories. But I think this ability to spin a story also helped Coco become completely revolutionary. In fact, many of the things that Coco did were state-of-the-art marketing tactics that are still used today. She used influencers to market her clothes for her. She put her clothes on beautiful women who would be seen in society and created the demand for her clothing that way. 
If you've ever gotten a free sample of a beauty product because you bought something else, Coca was one of the first to do that. She would include a free bottle of Chanel Number no. 5 with purchases of some of her designs. So the most true fact that we can take from her life is that she lied. A lot. She marketed herself. Her real story is filled with poverty and trauma. She didn't want people to pity her, so she told stories to make herself into the hero of her own story. When, in fact, she was more of a scrappy survivor. She used whatever she could get her hands on to pull herself out of poverty, whether that was her lover's money or social standing. To contrast Coco, someone who made up a story about her extraordinary life, is Marie Marvant, who was the subject of a very recent episode. I will link to it in the show notes because if you like this episode, you really should listen to that episode. Coco and Marvant were contemporaries. They were born less than a decade apart and they had a lot in common. They were both confirmed spinsters, women who stayed single because it suited them and allowed them to do what they pleased. They both made valuable contributions to their industries. Coco Fashion and Marie Aviation and Nursing. She invented the air ambulance. Marie was also in the resistance in World War II. They were both active women who needed gender-bending clothing in order to do the things they loved. Marie had a bathing suit designed especially for her, so she could swim without drowning, while Coco, well, I'll get to the ways that Coco changed the way women got dressed. But history remembers them so differently. Marie was basically erased from history, even though most of her accomplishments can be documented through primary sources like newspapers. Her life sounds too fantastical to be believed, but her story is true. While Coco is celebrated and revered, even though much of her life story is a lie, and she was a Nazi supporter, Marie was actually someone to look up to. But I think Coco is remembered while Marie is not because, well, obviously her name is still out there. You can still buy her products today. Her legacy lived on. But I also think she is remembered because she revolutionized the way women dressed. She freed women from restrictive fashion. So let's talk about the fashion in a second. First, I want to address the Nazi in the room, Chanel's bad choices in men and political ideologies. One of Coco's most notable relationships was with Baron Hans Gunther von Dinklage, a Nazi intelligence officer that reported to Goebbels. Her sympathies extended further than her relationship. Coco Chanel was an anti-Semite through and through, but everything was working against her to make her views align with the right side of history. The not genocidal side of history, that is. Her childhood in the Catholic Church indoctrinated her from an early age with anti-Semitic views. Not all Catholics are anti-Semites, but there was some scandal or incident that made the French Catholic Church around the time that Coco was a child anti-Semitic. As a child, she was fully dependent on the Catholic Church for survival. And we've all heard horrific stories about how the Catholic Church failed to keep children safe, so going along with her hateful anti-Semitic views would have been one way for her to survive. And then, as an adult, she kept company with many, many Nazi sympathizers, like King Edward, the one that abdicated. And Coco herself was a Nazi agent. There's a whole book that's called Sleeping with the Enemy, Coco Chanel, Nazi Spy. So, yeah, hugely problematic. But Coco wasn't an independent thinker when it came to politics. And she wasn't an idealist. She was an opportunist. Paris was occupied by the Germans in World War II. And shacking up with a Nazi kept her living very comfortably throughout the war. Why would she give that lifestyle up? She came from nothing, fought her way out of poverty and low social standing. So it makes sense to me that she did what she did and believed what she did. Being an anti-Semite was self-preservation for Coco. And I'm not defending her choices. But if this was a character in a book or movie, and she all of a sudden joined the resistance and started fighting the Nazis, it just wouldn't be believable. So I understand what she did. Not understandable in a 
anyone would do the same thing in her position kind of way, but understandable in in a, I understand being an anti-Semite to be a thing that Coco Chanel would do kind of way. Even after the Germans lost and the war ended, Coco continued her relationship with Dinklage. Many French women who hooked up with Nazis, some who I'm sure did it to get food and other resources for survival, were publicly humiliated. But Coco got off pretty lightly, possibly in part due to her friendship with Winston Churchill, and she was able to escape to Switzerland. Yeah, I know, sounds super rough. And then lived there until the 1950s when she was able to return to France and revive the Chanel brand. So yeah, a flawed spinster for sure. My intention with this episode isn't to glorify the person or her politics or her personality. Coco was selfish. She was not speaking out against the injustices of the world. She may have closed her shop before World War II in order to retaliate against her staff that had gone on strike for fair hours and pay. Even though her clothes helped free women from restrictive fashion and allowed them to move more freely through the world, she wasn't designing clothes to further her own personal feminist agenda. She didn't really have a feminist agenda. Her personal politics and affiliations were appalling, but her contribution to fashion furthered women's rights and equality, no matter how indirectly. So that being said, let's finally get into the fashion and how the fashion helps liberate women around the world from the tyranny of corsets. Fashion. For most of history, women's fashion was all about obscuring women's natural shape and forcing women into the style of the times with lots of padding, corseting, and tailoring. In Coco's early years, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, women wore giant hats that looked like elegantly decorated cakes. These hats were very heavy and needed architectural support to stay up and on women's heads. Women were also trussed up into S-bend corsets that tilted women's pelvises back very unnaturally. And this accentuated that big bummed silhouette that bustles created. Women's dresses often look like curtains or window dressing, which I guess is fitting because women were expected to look pretty and keep their mouths closed. The standard of beauty looked one way, which is super feminine and curvy with a very sweet face. Coco didn't look like these women. She had small breasts, an athletic figure. She would never, ever be plush and curvy. Her face was wide and angular. She also liked to ride horses astride like a man. In the fashionable clothes of the day, which included silhouettes like hobble skirts, which were skirts that tapered near the ankle, which made it impossible for women to do crazy activities like walk, get into carriages, and go upstairs, it was almost impossible to do the physical activities that Coco loved to do. Coco was not going to let a dumb skirt get in the way of what she wanted to do. She started by borrowing clothes from her boyfriends and then started making her own. While Coco wasn't the first designer to rebel against the fitted dresses of the day, she was the first one to capture the attention of the really fashionable set in Paris. Before she designed clothes, she designs hats, or simplified hats. Like I explained before, hats were ridiculous architectural things that were heavy and just ridiculous. Coco sold simple boater hats with one elegantly placed ribbon or one elegantly placed feather. She bought the hats wholesale from a store, added her own flair, like that ribbon or feather, and then sold them for a profit. Her first clothes were made of jersey, which was very scandalous because jersey was only supposed to be for men's underwear. Women weren't even supposed to know what men's underwear looked like. And the clothes that she designed were for herself. Like I said, she was flat-chested, had the figure of a 12-year-old boy, and she used a neutral, simple color palette for her designs like black, navy, and cream. She changed the way that we all dress. Some would argue for the worse, but also fuck those people. B.C., or before Chanel, women needed help getting dressed every day. Wealthy women had maids to help them change because the clothes were so complicated. And every activity required a costume change. You want to go to breakfast? You need a special outfit. 
You want to go on a walk? That's a different outfit than the breakfast outfit. And what about receiving visitors in the afternoon? You can't wear that walking about outfit. What will people say? And dinner? Don't tell me you wore that same dress in the afternoon. Savage. Of course, this protocol was for women from wealthy families, but certainly this was something that all women aspired to. This was the fashion of the day. And AC, after Chanel's jersey suits became the style of the day, women enjoyed garments made with simpler cuts and simpler fabric which changed everything. Women could dress themselves. They could move about more freely. They could do more activities. A new version of femininity. Definitions of femininity were rigid, and let's face it, are still rigid. Big doe eyes, soft features, soft curves, sweet pastel colors, layers of frill and lace. These are all hallmarks of the feminine, what we still consider feminine to this day. But Chanel's designs created a new way for women to be feminine. She didn't want women to dress like men or be masculine. She wanted to be a version of herself, a woman who didn't want to dress like a layer cake. So if you love any menswear-inspired pieces, those were popularized by Coco Chanel. She often borrowed clothes from her boyfriends and translated them into looks for women, like cutting open a crew neck sweater and turning it into a cardigan. So think blazers, cardigans, riding pants. Ooh, 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 ooh. And pants! If you like pants, then you can thank Chanel. No, she did not invent pants, but she helped popularize them for women, making them fashionable instead of low-class or risque or even illegal. I've covered pants time and time again on the show because pants, or trousers for the UK listeners, aren't just some frivolous piece of clothing. Pants are symbolic for the fight for women's rights. They represented equal access to professions, activities, and equal treatment under the law. Pants were used to other women to make us into a different class of people. For many years, in the U.S. and France, and probably many, many other places, it was illegal for women to wear pants. Anti-cross-dressing laws cemented gender norms that we're still fighting against today. I mean, look at the signs on restroom doors. The woman is still wearing a little skirt for fuck's sake. Today, we don't think twice while throwing on our favorite pair of jeans, but for years, the simple act of putting on pants was criminalized. It was just another choice that was taken away from women in the name of gender norms. The little black dress. Love it or hate it, the little black dress is another enduring legacy of Coco Chanel. She was absolutely a capitalist who wanted women to buy her stuff, but she didn't cultivate demand by changing her designs every year and making women feel shitty about themselves because they didn't have the latest fashions. She cultivated demand by creating her own style. Timeless pieces of clothing mean that women don't have to focus on shopping for the latest trends. Women don't have to focus on being fashionable at all. They can buy once and feel confident in their clothes for years to come, which is the ethos for the little black dress. It is one piece of clothing that can be worn for a number of occasions and makes the wearer feel stylish and in command and elegant. And when women don't have to put all their energy into getting dressed, they can do other things with their time. Democratization of fashion. Don't get me wrong, Coco was not an advocate for the poor. She wasn't trying to make a statement about class with her clothes, but she did bring a style change that affected the masses. She was using capitalism to influence greater style and to drive up demand for her product. The clothes she produced in her shop were for rich women, meaning that's who she marketed to and sold to. But the style translated to cheaper clothes for all women, something that she actually encouraged. She didn't care if cheaper brands copied her designs. She just saw it as more advertising for her and proof that what she was doing was working. Chanel brought about the prevalence of using cheaper materials in her garments, like jersey, which were also easy to care for. Women didn't have to spend hours on carefully laundering their clothes, which freed up even more of their time. Costume jewelry. 
Instead of fine jewelry pieces that only rich women could afford, Coco pushed costume jewelry. Now, women could fabulously accessorize even if they weren't independently wealthy. And how can we forget Chanel Number no. 5? I'm not a perfume person, but I think most perfume people think of Chanel Number no. 5 as like the it fragrance. When you think of women's perfume, you think of Chanel Number no. 5. The iconic fragrance was more than just an aroma. It was a way to make luxury products more accessible to all women. A bottle of Chanel Number no. 5 was much more affordable than a new wardrobe, but it also set the stage for when women did come into more money or became more successful themselves and had more money to spend on clothing. By making this fragrance that all women could wear, Coco planted the seed that would drive women to buy luxury products when they could afford them. The Comeback Kid Chanel shut her shop in the late 1930s and was out of business for many years for reasons we discussed earlier, most of which have to do with her anti-Semitism. Her comeback was in response to the Dior-style dresses of the 1950s, which had a lot in common with the way women were expected to dress when she was coming of age. Nipped in waists, corseting. Dior set out to make women look like flowers. And Chanel wanted women to feel powerful, which brought about another iconic garment, the Chanel suit, which was made popular by Jacqueline Onassis. Coco Chanel died in 1971 at the height of the resurgence of her brand. So, how to live like Coco Chanel or what we can take from her life that doesn't involve anti-Semitism. Coco Chanel isn't someone you should live like, but there is one lesson from her life that we can all apply to our own. Dress for yourself. You don't have to dress like Coco in order to channel her style. See what I did there? Coco wasn't a slave to the newest trends. In fact, she actively rebelled against trends and started her own trends. So if you love your skinny jeans or your side part, keep wearing them. Coco designed clothes that she herself would wear. In fact, she always wore her own designs. So take a page from her book and wear clothes you find comfortable. I know there are women who like wearing corsets and high heels. And if that's comfortable for you, have at it. As long as that's what you choose and not what you are forced into wearing. And that's why I'm so grateful for the work that Coco Chanel gave the world. If I was forced to wear corsets, giant hats, high-necked dresses, layers of fabric or skirts all the time... I would be constantly uncomfortable, but because I have a choice in what I wear, I get to more fully enjoy everything. And that's what she gave us, freedom from restrictive clothing. Not just the garments themselves, but the rigidly defined roles women are expected to play. You don't have to be a wife or a mother to be a woman. You don't have to dress like a layer cake to look and feel like a woman. You can define what that means for yourself. She was able to break free from the norm because her life was already so atypical. Would she have felt as free to make her own rules if she was a wife of? And do all of these advances for women make up for her hateful ideologies? No, especially because she wasn't the only one trying to change fashion. I think that less structured clothing for women would have come into fashion eventually. All that to say, Coco Chanel was an important figure in fashion history. She wasn't a great person. She wasn't a great example of what a spinster should be. But I do think she shows us that marriage isn't the only way to define the success of a woman. And I think she shows that marriage can hold some women back from what they are meant to achieve. She also shows us that being a spinster indeed does not mean being sexless. There are so many things that a relationship can mean. Being part of a monogamous married couple isn't necessarily the goal of every woman, and it shouldn't be. Thank you so much for listening to the Spinster Life Podcast. You can find us online, spinsterlife.com. You can listen to the podcast online, spinsterlifepodcast.com. Follow us on Instagram, at livingthespinsterlife. And you can sign up for the Substack newsletter. We are the Spinster Life on Substack. Thanks for listening. We'll see you later. <laughs>